our sermon this morning is the final installment of our walk through the, the birth narrative in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. So turn there in your Bibles. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find it on page 758 in the, in the pew Bibles. We've looked at, uh, we've looked at the birth of Christ uh, in chapter 1. Right, uh, Mary becomes pregnant. Joseph makes plans to divorce her. It's what our kids read to us this this morning, um, or what they recited from memory this morning, which is really impressive. Uh, Joseph is visited by an angel. He says, "Don't divorce Mary," so he stays with her and adopts Jesus. Uh, in in Matthew chapter two, um, we see the visit from the Magi. So they come from the from the east, probably. Uh, Gentile priests or magicians, uh, they come and they offer Jesus gold and frankincense and myrrh. Along their way, they kind of tip off Herod to the fact that, that something special has happened. Uh, a baby has been born. And so Herod is disturbed and sets out to kill uh, Jesus. He sees Jesus as a threat to his, his kingdom. And so in, verses, uh, in chapter 2, verses 13 to 18, uh, Herod uh, sends out uh, soldiers to kill all of the young children in Bethlehem in the hopes that one of them will be Jesus and that he can kind of eliminate this person who represents a threat to his uh, kingdom. And that brings us to uh, chapter verse 19. As, as Herod is sending out soldiers to kill all the children, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus flee to Egypt and they kind of take up residence there temporarily uh, to kind of escape the, the hand of, of Herod. And so they're in Egypt now, and they've been there for some, some time. We're not sure how long, uh, weeks, months, years, probably, probably closer to, to weeks or months, but we're not entirely sure. But we pick up in verse 19. It says, When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream in Egypt and said, Rise, child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And Joseph rose, and he took the child and his mother, and they went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the Christmas season. We thank you for the incarnation. We thank you that you came as a, as a baby to save us from our sin. We pray, Lord, as we consider this text this morning, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and encourage us and bless our time together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. So, uh, last passage in Matthew before Jesus is, uh, is a grown-up, which we see in, in chapter 3. When Herod died, an angel appeared to him in a dream and said, Take the child and his mother, go to Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. In all likelihood, this is uh, probably the same angel that we saw in uh, Matthew, earlier in this chapter and in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, very well might be the same angel from Luke chapters uh, 1. We're not, not here quite yet, um, Jesse, sorry, I, I should have clarified, but... Um, yeah, probably the same angel from Matthew 1 and 2. Might very well be the same angel from Luke 1 and 2, who Luke names specifically as uh, Gabriel. And he says, head on back to Israel, right? Uh, Egypt was a place that we had you go temporarily 
for the, for the safety of Jesus, whose, whose life was being uh, you know, sought by Herod. And it was a place to go temporarily so that we could fulfill some Old Testament prophecies that say that the Messiah would come out of, of Egypt. He would fulfill Israel's role uh, and, and be called out of Egypt just like Israel was. So, that was, so Egypt was temporary, but G- Jesus, uh, you know, God's plan, God's intention was for Jesus to live in and grow up in and kind of be presented to and be the Savior of Israel. Jesus is the Savior of the whole world. He kind of expands, the, the, extends his rule and reign from Israel out to the whole world, but it starts with Israel. And so the angel says, head back to, head back to Israel. And then verse 21, he rose, Joseph rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. I wanted to just take a minute and just kind of consider uh, Joseph and his heart and his actions and his decisions and kind of who he is and what he does in this text and really in, in all of Matthew 1 and 2 because I think it's, I think it's, uh, I think it's meaningful. All right, Joseph, Joseph's story up until Matthew 1 He's a carpenter in Nazareth. Nazareth is not a big city. It's not exactly a, a, you know, a metropolitan hub. But Joseph had steady work, right? He had his own business. It was skilled labor. He was able to provide for his family. Joseph was on a track before, he, before anything happened in Matthew 1 and 2. He was on track to live the life that he wanted, marriage, kids, and then the woman that he loves is pregnant. He assumes that she has been unfaithful to him. And then here comes this angel that says, no, she hasn't been unfaithful to you, but we want you to marry her anyway, despite the fact that everyone is going to think that she was unfaithful to you. So that's going to be her reputation. So your reputation is going to be the loser who decided to stay with the woman who was not faithful to him. And your child's reputation is going to be that a child who was conceived out of wedlock. So this is a, it's a big ask, right? The angel's uh, request or command to Joseph is a big ask to raise a child that's not your own with a woman who got pregnant apart from you having gotten her. There are, there are a lot of men today who can't be convinced to raise their own children, let alone would, would be willing to raise someone else's child like Joseph is. All right, there's a lot, of, a lot of single moms who are struggling severely because they've been abandoned by men who don't want to raise their own children. There are a lot of women who are considering abortion because someone got them pregnant, and as soon as they found out, uh, they left. There are a lot of men pressuring women to get abortions because those men don't want to deal with the inconvenience of being a father. And that's when, that's when the child shares his own DNA, right? That's when it's your child and, and the calling. Right? That's when all of your biological impulses are like screaming to you to protect this child, provide for this child because he shares your genetic uh, makeup. There are men today who don't want to raise their own child or commit to a woman who is carrying their own child. This angel comes to Joseph and says, I want you to raise a child that's not yours. Right? I want you to commit to a woman who's carrying a child that's not yours, which represents countless hours 
and countless dollars and countless resources that, that this angel is telling Joseph to pour into this woman, into this child. What was initially going to be a, a quick trip to Bethlehem for this census, as a, I mean, as a single guy, I've made great time right? You know, zipping down the road. You don't have to, right? What was initially going to be a quick trip to Bethlehem and back as a single guy is now you're traveling with a pregnant woman. She's probably going to give birth while you're there. Your plans to come immediately back up to Nazareth and, and restart your business now is going to be, you know, that, that's going to be tabled. You're going to have to go to Egypt now and seek uh, political asylum as a refugee there. As soon as you get comfortable in Egypt and think you might be able to make a life there, all of a sudden you're going to be called to go back to Israel. Time and time again, incident after incident, God calls Joseph to do something that he wasn't planning on doing, something that is altogether inconvenient or difficult or dangerous or costly. And time and time again, Joseph responds with obedience. That's where you can flip to that slide, Jesse. Right? Matthew one twenty. right? Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And then a few verses later, Joseph did as the Lord commanded. He took his wife and did not know her until he'd given birth to a son. Next one. The angel appeared to Joseph and said, take this child to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. And he rose and took the child. Right? Never, never any hesitation, never any questioning, bargaining, arguing, refusing. Right? Let's look at the next one. Angel appeared to him and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. And, and Joseph rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Joseph is obedient to the word of God in his life. Never stops to say, What's in it for me? Right? How can I, how can I leverage my obedience to get what I want or advance my own agenda? Right? If I were to withhold my obedience, how could I use it as a bargaining? Right? On the spectrum of, um, Abraham to Jonah, right? Abraham, right? God says, leave your home, leave your family, go to the land that I will show you. And he does. God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, offer him as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will tell you. And he does, right? Abraham listens to God and is faithful. Jonah, God calls him to, to go to Nineveh and confront them and preach to them. And Jonah runs the opposite way. So on the spectrum from Abraham to Jonah, in terms of how you respond to the word of God and the calling of God in your life, Joseph looks an awful lot like Abraham and embodies this this willing submissiveness to the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Which is instructive for us, right? It's instructive for us to consider if God called me to do something that maybe I didn't like or maybe I wasn't planning on doing or maybe it's inconvenient or maybe it is, um, you know, dangerous or costly... Would I do it? If God called me to give up my own autonomy or independence or my ability to do whatever I wanted, if God called me out of that and instead called me to love my neighbor in some tangible way or, or you know, uh, called me to commit myself to them or obligate myself to them at great expense to myself with very, very little potential for any sort of return on investment, if God called me to do something like that, would I do it or would I refuse or, or come up with reasons why I you know, don't really have to or why it's not feasible or not, not realistic. 
Are we listening to the word of God and following it where he calls us and, and obeying? Like, I, I doubt anyone here is in the position of Joseph where God is calling us to marry a pregnant woman and adopt their child as our own. But I imagine that all of us here are in a position where God is calling us to do something. Right? God is, uh, is laying on our hearts some uh, form of obedience or discipleship that may in fact be costly. And we have the same question as Joseph of will we listen and will we obey? Right? If God calls you to engage with your coworker, ask them questions about their life, listen carefully as they talk with you, share the gospel with them, invite them to church, would you do it or would you make excuses why you shouldn't have to? If God calls you to invite a neighbor over for dinner and spend time with them and, and you know, tell them about what the Lord has been teaching you in your life as of late and what he's been convicting you of and, and asks you to share the gospel with them, would you do it, right? If God called you to reconcile with someone that you've been in conflict with or, or defer to your spouse on some issue that you guys have not been seeing eye to eye on or support a missionary so that they can go to the, go to the field and share the gospel with people. If God, if God calls you to approach someone in this church and, and ask them to disciple you, or if God calls you to approach someone in this church and invite them to let you disciple them, would you do it? Would you listen to the word of God and obey like Joseph, or would you uh, refuse and, and ignore it or justify doing what you want to do instead of instead of what God has called you to do. Joseph listens to the word of God and he obeys the word of God in a way that is really uh, exemplary for us. Now, looking at Joseph though and looking at what it, you know, how Joseph hears the word of God, listens to the God and re- listens to the word of God and responds by obeying does kind of raise the question of what does that look like in our lives today, right? Like, what does it look like to to hear the Word of God, hear what God has called us to in our lives today? With Joseph, it keeps happening through dreams and and visions. Angels keep coming to to visit him. Same thing with Abraham and with Jonah. It says the Word of the Lord came to them, came and spoke to them. And so if we're going to if we're going to think about and consider how we can obey the word of God in our lives, then we should first consider how we can hear the word of God in our lives and what it what it means to hear the word of the Lord in a similar way to how Joseph and these folks in the old uh, Old Testament and then in the old covenant did. Because the reality is it probably looks different for us today. Hearing the word of the Lord, hearing the calling of God in our life probably looks different for us today than it did for these folks because we live in different periods of redemptive history, right? Uh, we live in the new covenant. These guys lived in the old covenant. So, so with us, Jesus has come. With them, he had not yet, right? With, with Joseph and the, the guys before him, the church had not been formed yet. The Bible had not been completed and finalized and, and codified yet, Right? People in Joseph's day didn't have their own personal copies of the Bible like we have today. The Holy Spirit had not been given at at Pentecost yet. So there's a lot of significant differences between the time and space that we inhabit and the time and space that Joseph uh, inhabited. So much so that that listening to the Word of God might look different for us today than it did for, for Joseph, right? In the Old Covenant, God spoke a lot to his people through visions and, and dreams and kind of sending angels and these kinds of things. You hear God uh, audibly. You see God visibly. Go here, do this, do that. 
that doesn't seem to be the norm in the new covenant, right? In, in the, the space that we inhabit, that doesn't seem to be the, the normative way that God speaks to his people. Now, uh, God can. I believe that God can and does speak to his people that way, through visions, dreams, audibly, visibly, right? God is perfectly able to. He is, he's no less able to speak to his people in that way now than he was in, in Matthew 2 or in the, in the old covenant. And there's some theologians that think that's the, some theologians think that God never speaks to his people anymore through visions, dreams, signs, miracles. So if you hear someone saying, God spoke to me, God called me, they're, they're either lying or they're crazy or maybe they were hearing from a, a demon or something, something like that. So there's, there's like theological streams that kind of say God never speaks. They kind of have this firm, unwavering position that all of God's miracles and signs have ceased. I don't believe that personally. I think it's tough to justify biblically. I don't see a ton of evidence for, in, the, in the Bible for that being the, the case. It seems a little presumptuous to tell, you know, to you know, to say for sure that God cannot do something when he, when he seems to be able to. Plus, it also is difficult to explain, you know, things that we literally observe in time. You know, there, I, I've, I've spoken with missionaries kind of on the field, frontier missionaries who see and experience miraculous things, healings, people being brought back from the dead, you know, really like crazy things. Uh, and so if you, if you believe in the, the stream is called cessationism. If you're a cessationist, it's kind of tough to account for things like that because you believe that God doesn't do that anymore or that he can't do that anymore. And so you're not really sure what to make of it when people say that they saw it or that, that it happened. So I don't hold to that position. But on the other hand, there are some theologians that think not only that God can do these kinds of miraculous, supernatural signs, speak to his people in dreams and give them prophetic words and things like that. They actually think that that's like the, the only way, or the, the primary way that God speaks to his people is through dreams and signs and visions. So much so that if you're living your Christian life and repenting and believing the gospel and walking with Jesus, but God is not giving you special revelations, special signs, special visions, like downloaded right into your head and your, your heart, if that's not happening to you regularly, then there's something wrong with you. And you're an inferior Christian because you don't have this special relationship where God visits you and speaks to you audibly and, and visibly, or if you don't have a, your own private prayer language that you speak to God with that no one can understand, maybe even you don't understand. And so I don't believe that either because, um, you know, because that kind of, it means that the locus of like how you interact with God and, and what you hear from God and what is authoritative in your life comes from within your own head and within your own heart, right? No one can, when God tells you something, no one can question it because it is the most authority. I mean, even if it contradicts scripture, right? There are, there are theologians that are so committed to signs and wonders that they would say, if you hear a word from the Lord, regardless of whether it's contradicted by scripture or contradicted by, you know, the, the, uh, the biblical community that you live in, that is authoritative in your, your life. And so I think there's problems with that too. So like this hard and fast cessationism, God never speaks that way, I think is problematic. And this kind of 
uh, God only speaks that way or God primarily speaks that way, I think is problematic uh, as, as well. Um, so, so if both of those ends of if both of those sides of the spectrum are dangerous, then I would argue that the primary way that God speaks to His people today in the New Covenant would be not necessarily through things that are inside of my heart or in my head, but things that I can read and and right through through God's Word that I can hold and read and look at. It's outside of me. It's not subjective. It's not based on me and my own uh, interpretations. And through wise counsel, godly counsel, go- godly people that I can surround myself with that can speak into my life and kind of give me. Uh, counsel. I think that's the primary way that God speaks to you. If you, if, um, if someone were to say, all right, I heard from the word of the Lord, right? God is calling me to go share the gospel with my neighbor. And I feel it in my bones. Like I literally heard him audibly tell me to go do it so much so that it would be a sin not to. Then I think that's sure. I think that's a, I've, I've by all means, I think God probably told you, God probably called you, you should obey him and you should go share the gospel with your neighbor. But if a guy were to say, God has called me, I've, heard, I've had someone tell me this. If, if someone were to say, God has called me to leave my spouse. I was in love with her, but I'm not anymore. I actually had an affair. I committed adultery, but now I realize that I love that person more than I love my spouse. And I feel God confirming deep in my heart that he wants me to leave my spouse and marry this other person. That's the will of God for my life, then that's just, that's not true. That's like, I'm, I'm, regardless of whether you heard it or not, feel it or not, saw someone tell you that or not, that's not God, uh, you know, God would not tell you something visibly or audibly that contradicts the word that he has given you in, in scripture. There's a, there's a pastor who planted a church and like he, the, 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 the impetus that kind of propelled him to plant this church was that he heard a word from the Lord. He, he like saw visibly and heard audibly. Uh, he was dating a girl at the time, and God told him four things. Uh, marry, that, marry that girl, teach the Bible, plant churches, train men. And he said, I heard those four things. That's the calling that God placed on my life. Marry her, uh, teach the Bible, plant churches, train men, which are all good things. And I do think that God probably called that guy to do those things. But in his mind, like he had this like unilateral, unequivocal, like irrevocable calling that was like deep in his soul and in his heart. And it like, it was the strongest, most authoritative thing. So much so that uh, no matter what anyone told him, nothing could make him question his calling to be a, a pastor. And over time, years later, Dude went off the rails and started mistreating people and abusing people and kind of committing sins that were actually disqualifying for the office of pastor. And the elders at his church confronted him and said, hey, here are some reasons why we think that you're not at the moment qualified to be an elder. We think you need to step back and to go through a process of restoration. And he, said, he appealed to, no, I have this calling that I, you know, if you, God called me to marry her, plant churches, marry her, teach the Bible, plant churches, train men. If you're telling me not to do that, then you have to be wrong. Like, God told me to do it, you have to be wrong. And so he quit. And he went and started another um, church, and he's doing a lot of the same things there, right? Because in his mind, God spoke to me, no one can question that word that I received from God. That's not how God speaks to his people, at least in the New Covenant, right? In the New Covenant age, God speaks to his people through his word, 
So you read the Bible, you meditate on it, you pray over it, you hear what the Lord is speaking to you through His Word, and God speaks to His people through the church, right? Through, through like our calling to ministries affirmed by other people. Decisions that we are th- considering can be affirmed by other people. So the primary way that God speaks to his people in the new covenant is not through uh, like an audible word from the Lord. I think it's through his word and through his church. It's through his, his people. I think he does, can and does speak audibly. I just don't think that he does it all the time. I don't think that he does it primarily in a way that gives it more authority than God's word or than God's people. And of course, the main reason why I think that the main reason why it's dangerous to lean too much on dreams or visions or things like that is that it's subjective. It's coming from within ourselves. It's kind of, it's, it's the definition of a conflict of interest, right? Like if there's something I want to do and my heart convinces me that God has called me to do it, that is like, that's, and Jeremiah seventeen nine. we have the verse I think up here. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So an implication here is that your heart has the capacity to deceive you. Your heart has the capacity to take what it wants and convince you that it's what God wants for you or it's what God has called you to. The heart is deceitful and so we need to kind of check our hearts. We need to restrain our hearts or push back against our own hearts by objective external sources like God's word and the people of God, right? A good, healthy local church with believers that we can listen to and invite their accountability and give them permission to speak into our lives and submit to their authority. So in Joseph's day, the word of God often took the form of a dream. In our day, it probably does not. It probably looks more like reading your Bible, studying it, praying over it, listening to and leaning on your local church and inviting its instruction and discipline. But the underlying principle is still the same. The underlying principle is still listen to the word of God in whatever way is appropriate for where you stand in redemptive history. Listen to the word of God and then obey the word of God, even if it's costly, even if it's inconvenient, even if it doesn't align with your plans and, and preferences and expectations. And Joseph gives us a model of that. So back to verse 21 and now 22. So he rose, took the child and his mother, and went back to the land of Israel. But when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. So Joseph does exactly what the angel says right away, leaves, goes to Israel without hesitating. But as he's going, he also exercises discernment and caution and care and and wisdom. King Herod died in 4 BC, probably shortly after his his edict to have all the children in Bethlehem killed. So probably shortly after uh, Joseph's flight to, to Egypt. But he dies, and when King Herod died, his kingdom was split into four uh, sections, four segments, and, and it was given to his four children almost equally, and they, was, they were called tetrarchs. So tetrarchs means four. Um, and so they, they've got, you've, I mean, it's like the classic spoiled, entitled, rich kid, right? Like, Four kids that are all that all kind of inherit a fourth of a kingdom from their rich father. There's Herod Antipas, who ruled up in Galilee up north. That's the one that we see later in the Gospels that kind of uh, goes head to head with John the Baptist. 
Then you've got Herod Archelaus, who ruled over Judea and Samaria. So southern, kind of central and southern Israel, which includes Jerusalem and Bethlehem. All, all of them were bad guys. Herod the Great, the dad, was a bad guy. Herod Antipas, Herod Archelaus, they were all bad guys, wicked guys, ruthless guys. Herod Archelaus in Judea was especially ruthless. He, uh, as soon as he became king, he had all potential other, you know, any like relatives or potential successors to his throne killed because he didn't want them trying to, you know, compete with him for power. He went to the, the temple and he put idols uh, in the temple and he forced people to worship these idols in their temple in violation of their conscience and their religious convictions. There was a contingent of uh, citizens in Israel who kind of lobbied to have uh, Archelaus removed from office because he was a brutal dictator. And instead of listening to them, he, d- he didn't listen to their appeals to have him removed from office. He didn't give them a chance to be heard by anyone else who might be able to hold, them, uh, hold him accountable. Instead, he cut them off on their way to go complain about him, almost like if, your bo- if you want to go to HR to complain about your boss, and your boss just murdered you on the way to HR. It's kind of what Archelaus did with 3,000, a contingent of 3,000 Israelites that were going to go complain about Archelaus, and he had them, all 3,000 of them, uh, killed. Archelaus was a bad guy. And so, so Joseph and Mary and Jesus are on the way back, and they hear, man, Herod the Great was bad. Archelaus is as bad, if not even worse. I don't know that I want to go uh, back to Bethlehem. So God does want us, like in verse 21, God wants us to obey his word, listen to his word, follow his word, even when it's costly, even when the world uh, thinks that it's ridiculous, even when it doesn't comport with our plans and our preferences, and God wants us to be wise and careful and discerning. If If you're riding a car with your friend, and he said, do you believe that God is sovereign? Yeah. Do you trust God? Yeah. And he says, great. Well, then I'm going to close my eyes, take my hand off the wheel, jam down the accelerator, and like we're just going to trust God together that God's going to steer us home and park the car safely in the driveway. I would, like, I would, I would, I would say, I'm pretty sure God didn't tell you to do that, man. Um, I, that's stupid, don't do that. And um, if he did, I would just take the keys out of the ignition. And that doesn't mean that I don't trust God. That just means that like God wants us to trust him, hear his word and obey him, and be careful and wise and, and you know, cautious. If you, if you give away 10% of your money that you earn to your, to your local church, if you support missionaries, if you practice uh, sacrificial hospitality and try to love your neighbors and share the gospel with them, you do those things for the entirety of your life, you're going to be out a lot of money. You're going to be out thousands, tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars maybe. If you, as opposed to if you had just kept it all. So, so the world looks at uh, you know, sacrificial generosity that God has called his people to and says that's ridiculous, that's crazy, that's stupid, and yet we're called to do it. But if you had a friend who said, you know, if you had a friend who was a husband, father, wife, kids, job, he's paying off his mortgage, saving for his college, his kids' college tuition, right, weddings, 
retirement, whatever it is. And he said, I heard a word from the Lord. God wants me to quit my job, don a robe, right? Walk around barefoot. I, when I was in college, there was a dude. We, we called him Barefoot Jesus. He came through. He came through JMU. He, there's a documentary about it. You can look online. But he came through and he like did, did, did that. He wore a robe. He, had a, he looked a beard, hair, and everything. And he just walked around, no money, and he would just like sleep wherever and like just kind of go and, and kind of um, yeah, talk to people about religious things. And so if someone came to me and said, I, I think God has called me to sell my house, give it away, and go do that, I would say, you know, maybe, probably not, right? Like you've committed to, like, you've committed to your wife and to your kids and to your church and to your job. Like there, there are commitments that you have a biblical responsibility to like be faithful to. And so God wants us to hear his word and respond and obey his word. And he wants us to think about the consequences and to be wise and to be careful and to consider the long-term ramifications of our of our actions. So don't make a rash decision. Don't jump into something without thinking about how it is going to play out. So Joseph hears from God and says, I'm going to go back to Israel right away, no questions asked. And then Joseph hears of a potentially life-threatening situation in Israel, and he stops, and he thinks, and he's careful, and he is cautious. God wants us to obey, and he wants us to be careful, and he wants us to be cautious, to use judgment and to use discernment. It says, being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So, as Joseph is stopping to think and be careful and be cautious, God meets him again right there. He's saying, I'm, I'm glad that you stopped. I'm glad that you are thinking carefully about this. And I have some new revelation for you that I want to speak to you. Right? I'm glad that you left Egypt. Right? I wasn't mistaken when I told you to leave Egypt because I don't make mistakes. But you're also right about Archelaus and about the fact that he's a bad guy and he's dangerous and I don't want you to be near him. So I want you to go back to Galilee and avoid Judea altogether. So sometimes, right, Joseph, uh, at God's prompting, at God's calling, decides not to go right into the belly of the beast in Jerusalem, in Judea, where Archelaus is, and stand and confront him like Moses did with Pharaoh. Instead, God at, or Joseph, at God's prompting, goes away from Herod or away from Archelaus, Herod Archelaus, and goes up to up to Galilee. Sometimes God calls His people not to. A lot of Christians that are really confrontational, right? And uh, like every every battle is a battle worth fighting. Every hill is a hill worth dying on. Everything that I believe, I want to fight about and I want to argue uh, about it. And sometimes God just says, "You don't have to fight. You don't have to win. You don't have to engage. You don't have to, you know, make sure everyone sees how right you are. You can just go the other way. Leave it alone." God calls Joseph to go the other way, just to quietly, peacefully refuse to engage with a potentially contentious situation here with Herod Archelaus in Judea. I suspect he calls us to do that from time to time. I suspect that there are a number of opportunities where we could fight, draw a line in the sand, stand up. You know, we can probably baptize it, justify it, feel like we're being really righteous when we do that, like we're standing up for God 
but in reality, we're just being contentious or being um, difficult or being prideful. Sometimes God says, just go the other way. Don't engage, don't argue, don't insist on winning and getting the last word. And then verse 23, it says, Joseph went and he lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So uh, Galilee, in verse 22, is the region up north in Israel, uh, around, surrounding uh, the Sea of Galilee. And Nazareth is the city, the particular city, the particular village in the district of uh, Galilee. Joseph was from there. That's where he had come from originally. And so he's kind of returning back home to where he, uh, to where he grew up and to where he had been working up until that point. Heads back to, back to Nazareth. It says so that it might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. This is interesting because that is not a verse in the Old Testament. Like if you Google, he would be called a Nazarene, it's nowhere in the Old Testament. If you Google the word Nazareth, it's nowhere in the Old Testament. So scholars kind of have, have you know, thought carefully about what this verse means and why Matthew said this in this way. There's a couple of different, you know, theories on it. One is that it's like a wordplay, right? The word Nazareth kind of sounds like the Hebrew word for branch. And so some scholars think, oh, this is like, he's saying that the Messiah would be from Nazareth, which is kind of like a wordplay or like a rhyme, um, like a pun, based on something like um, Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 3, where we read that the Messiah, right, about the Messiah, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch, that's the word that sounds a lot like Nazareth, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, and might, knowledge and fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So some, some scholars think, ah, see, the Messiah is referred to in the Old Testament as a branch, a fruit-bearing branch, and so Matthew is picking up on that and saying uh, that the Messiah is going to come from Nazareth, which is kind of sounds like the word uh, branch, which could very well be the case. I'm not sure. I, 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 you know, I think that could very easily be what Matthew's going for here. But maybe what's more likely is that Matthew, when Matthew says that the Old Testament says that uh, the Messiah would be a Nazarene, he's kind of picking up on some baggage that was associated with the city of Nazareth and what it means to be from Nazareth and to be in Nazareth, which is that it was the worst, right? Everyone hated it. No, no one liked Nazareth. Nazareth was, was the sticks, right? You know, uh, backwoods, right? When, um, when, when in, in uh, let's see, in Mark 6, Jesus is doing miracles in Nazareth, and everyone says, there's no way that this guy could be a real teacher, a real prophet, a real man with any real religious authority. Why? Because he's from Nazareth. He's from here. These guys are from Nazareth, and they hate Nazareth. They're like, we're from here, and we think this place is so bad that nothing, that there's, you know, there's no chance that anyone with any real viable religious authority would come from here. In John 1, uh, Philip goes to tell Nathaniel, he says, hey, Nathaniel, come with me. I found the Messiah. He's awesome. He's God. He's the greatest. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Jesus of Nazareth? Nothing good could possibly come from Nazareth. That place is a loser town full of loser people. 
and there's no way that anyone good would come out of there. So that's like the vibe, that's the feeling about Nazareth. Now, you take that and you overlay it against how the Old Testament prophesied that we would feel about, or the vibe of the Messiah, somewhere like in Isaiah 53, the Messiah would have no form or majesty that we won't even want to look at him. He will be so uh, like not compelling visibly that we won't even want to look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised by men, rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was one. He was like one from whom men hide their faces despised and held in low esteem. That is how the Old Testament anticipates the world will feel about Jesus. And that is how the first century Near East felt about Nazareth. You can almost like take that exact, that language, that ethos, how you feel when you read those words, that's exactly how people felt about Nazareth. And so when Matthew is saying that the Messiah will be a Nazarene, what he's, what he's you know, what, what is very possible is that he's picking up on this kind of sentiment and saying, this is how we were, we're going to feel about the Messiah, and this is how we feel about Nazareth, and therefore it's entirely plausible that the Messiah who we're going to despise and reject and not desire, is going to come from Nazareth, who, incidentally, we despise and reject and we don't want anything to do with. The Messiah is not going to be impressive. He's not going to be attractive. He's not going to be rich. He's not going to be well-to-do. He's going to be poor and lowly and humble, and no one's really going to care all that much about him. Don't be quick to despise places like Nazareth. Don't be quick to despise circumstances like Nazareth in your own life. Jesus didn't. Job that doesn't pay well, menial tasks, manual labor, a house that's small or old or crappy cars or Whatever, right? Your clothes are not new and flashy and expensive and cool. You don't have all of the, you know, newest, coolest, right? Your, your circumstances are humble and unimpressive. And there's something that the world would be inclined to overlook and scorn and despise. For a great many of us, that's exactly what God has called us to. That's exactly what God wants. Uh, that's where God wants us to be so that we can represent Him and ascribe glory to Him. There's, there's meaningful, significant ministry to be done in those kinds of unassuming spaces. The world celebrates famous, rich, impressive, right? Successful, be a celebrity, build your brand, get, you know, have a wide influence. With God, God celebrates people who are faithful right where they are. Even when it's small, even when it is not successful or impressive. In the grand scheme of eternity, we're going to find that 
It's far more valuable and far more effective to be faithful right where you are than it is to have something that the world values or is impressed by. Jesus had everything. Jesus had it all. Jesus was a king. He uh, was sitting on a throne. He was being worshipped for all of eternity. And Jesus left that to come here into our world as a baby in a stable, laid in a manger. His parents were poor, refugees, fleeing to another country, landing in a rural town that everyone rolled their eyes out and thought was stupid. And that Town, that little despised, overlooked town in the middle of flyover country, that little town was Jesus' base of operations. That's where he'd learn to read and write, and he would learn to be a carpenter, Nazareth. And from Nazareth, Jesus, when Jesus was in Nazareth, he grew up with his family, and he, and he worked, and he taught, and he did miracles. When Jesus went to Jerusalem, the big city, right, the impressive, successful fancy, well-to-do city, that's where he was killed. That's where he was betrayed, arrested, condemned, crucified. Jerusalem is where Jesus would bear the sins of the world so that his people could be forgiven and welcomed back into a relationship with him. Jesus goes from residing in heaven on a throne, worshipped by the heavenly hosts, to a manger, to a refugee, to a crappy town like Nazareth, and ultimately to the cross. So don't despise the lowly, the small, the seemingly insignificant. Don't despise the things that the world overlooks because Jesus didn't. And our calling as the people of God is to follow in the way of Jesus. It's to trust in him, receive his presence, his his grace, receive the salvation that he has secured for us. Our, Our calling is to listen to the word of God like Joseph. It's to obey the word of God like Joseph, even when it means being despised and rejected by the world like Nazareth and like, like Jesus was. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to us, that you willingly entered into a world that's marked by pain and suffering, that you willingly stepped into a life marked by danger and difficulty on the run from the moment that you were born, living in a small, despised town, toiling in obscurity for decades, dying on a cross, for our sin, saving us from our sin. Lord, we thank you for who you are and for what you did for us. And Lord, we pray that we could respond rightly to who you are by trusting in you, listening to your word, and obeying your word, and and by walking in that which you have called us to do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.